Hello and welcome to the Turned On Podcast. I'm Angelique Nori and my husband David and I have made it our mission to break the darkness by flipping the switch on the four most important areas of your life in health, relationships, business, and in faith. And sometimes the light in the world and in your life can go dim, either from the intrusion of technology or simply because society is so driven by instant gratification. It's our mission to help people see that we're hardwired for connection and that the best things in life come when we turn on the light to see with new eyes the opportunity that exists just a flip away. So if you're ready to stir your spirit, open your eyes, and profit in all areas of your life, then let's get turned on. Here we go. <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, I'm humble today. I'm coming to you humble today. And, well, my daughter, uh, Ella, tried to help me. She is my technical advisor. And I'm humble because I tried to get too fancy. I wanted to do some fancy stuff for you. And I realized, hey, sometimes you can't be fancy. I just picked up a shirt when I was coming through the University of Nebraska. It says, run the damn ball. That means sometimes... Sometimes it's just best to hand it off and run because that's what gets the job done. And speaking of running the ball, we're going to have a guest today, my guest, my friend, a good friend with a great story that you are going to love. Uh, He knows a thing or two about running the ball. This guy I met uh, probably 10 years ago, and we're, we're a couple years apart in age, but I grew up knowing him very well, watching him on television, and then I went out when I had a channel... um, out in Phoenix, and I did a story on him. He was a photographer. But that's where everything changed because he he became one of my best friends. Uh, we, we went to Bible study all the time together. We've kept in touch all these years. We've been business partners here and there, and we just entered another venture together. But his story goes back, and, and look, guys, I'm going to tell you this. You know, one of the things that we like to do here is we always go early on what's in it for you. So my guest story is a universal story because I think a large amount of people out there that I talk to, that Angelique talked to, are trying to do a couple things. And tell me if this is you at an area in your life. A large amount of people I talk to are trying to reinvent themselves in some way. A large amount of people that I talk to are trying to form some type of a comeback. Um, a lot of people I talk to are overcoming, overcoming things that have maybe haunted them in their past. Um, getting through different types of traumas. But more importantly, I think a lot of people these days are looking for God and they're looking for answers. But more importantly, they're looking just how can we live life and have some fun along the way and really make a difference, make an impact on people. And that's what we're going to talk about here with my good friend, Tony Mandrich. Tony, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dave. Well, there's, there's so much that I could go through. And like I said, years ago when I came out there and I came to your studio and I, I played that Iron Man by uh, Black Sabbath, right? And guys, you know, Tony has an infectious laugh, but there's so many parts of his story that we're going to get to. Uh, he was the number two overall draft pick in 1989, and he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and he's got a storied past, but more importantly, we're going to talk about what he's doing right now and how his story can help your story. Um. So many times, Tony, what we see is one side of a person. And unfortunately, and fortunately for you, you've had a lot of celebrity. And you've had the camera in your face at the best times, and you've had your camera in the face at the hard times. And what I admire about you most is that 
you have been able to constantly overcome adversity in your life and reinvent yourself. And, you know, people think when you're saved, it's just from one day to the next, you know, you have this miraculous change and everything is easy, but you've done it over and over again. And in the years that I've known you and about the decade that I've known you, I think what's most impressed me is your story, is how you've come to overcome so many things and you're still working on yourself and you're still reinventing yourself. And I think we all are in some ways. That's why I think your story touches the soul of just about everybody listening. So um, let's start off with that. Let's start off with a couple of things about your story that people know you for and what you're doing today. Well, they probably uh, they probably know me most about you know with the football career and um, and then associated with the football career probably the steroid use and and that comes all from kind of probably the Sports Illustrated cover in 1989 you know coupled with arrogance and having a loud mouth and being a good player and then failing as a good player you know um, in the NFL the first time. And so that's like, that's probably a to- like, you know, uh, talking from third person, that's probably a Tony Mandarich that a lot of people only know. And then there's really even more to the story than way more to the story than that. Since that time, since say 1992, when I left the league or 1995, when I, when I got sober, um, by the grace of God. And, you know, since, since then, you know, the, you know, a lot of people will know about the comeback, but less people know about the comeback of coming to the NFL and, and playing for three more years um, than they know about the first part. Just because a lot of times success is not as glamorized um, or a comeback is not as glamorized as a, as a failure uh, in the media, in the legacy media, even back then. Um, I think that, you know, sometimes I, I'm not sure. I have a hard time processing the thoughts of I want to see that person fail. Like, like, but I think there are people that are like that, that do actually have the motivation of hoping that somebody fails. That being said, I think when people do fail, um, then you have that whole other, you know, group of people, some, the media, in my case, the most obvious, the media, you know, it's, it's a great, headline story to write especially since there was such a dichotomy in success you know like from a super high on the top of the mountain to a super low in the in the abyss of the ocean yeah so you know that's what it's like people want to know what happened what happened so i think a lot of people that don't that have never like say per se met me yeah um that's all they know that's all they know about me and um and and for me i'm like that's okay uh if that's all they know, that's all they know. You know, I don't, I don't want to say I don't care what people think about me, but I don't lose any sleep over what people think yep. about me. You know, not everybody's going to like me. Not everybody's going to like you. Um, you know, I always say if, if everybody likes you, you haven't, you know, you haven't met enough people. Exactly. Um, <laughs> well, let's, you know. let's talk about this. You know, we talk about courage and when people think about courage in a six foot five, 330 pound body, as a young man in your uh, in your early twenties, who can bench yep. press two twenty five thirty nine times and run a uh, you know a four nine forty, um, courage is one thing because when you walk into a room and you're the biggest guy in there, 
uh, there's a physical courage. And as your friend and as somebody who's watched you over the years and as somebody who knows um, from afar um, what a struggle could be like when you're constantly overcoming and, and putting the ghosts of the past behind you. Um, again, I would tell you in private and I tell people um, that I have conversations with you about, I go, you know, the, the most courageous thing about Tony is, is his spirit. Um, you know, the part inside that you can't see, the part that is not 6'6", six, six, uh, that part that every day you wake up, and, and it hasn't just been football, you know, and it hasn't just right. been alcohol. Um, there's been other things, but you constantly sought God at one point, and, and then you used that to still be in pursuit. And when we think about this, I think about the story of David in the Bible, you know, an imperfect character who overcame things, but was after God's own heart, and God continued to bless him and use David to this day, right? I mean, the bloodline came right. through David. Right. And so tell me about what that means when you wake up now um, at 55, right? Uh, 50, yeah, uh, 56, almost 57. Okay, okay. And when you wake up every day and say, hey, you know what? Um, yeah, people know me. Uh, you were just on your alma mater's podcast the other day at Michigan State, go Spartans. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you have some fun. I think what you didn't let is you didn't let that define you, and I think that's what really makes a statement. So talk to people out there who, who think that they can't escape something and they can't redefine themselves. Well, yeah. I mean, every morning, it, it, here's the thing, you know, and you had touched on it at the, at the top of the show when you were trying to get too fancy, right? It's kind of keep it fundamental. It's not the fancy, you know, shiny objects that distract us so easy that get it. Like, that's not the stuff that is real. Um, the stuff that is real is really the simple, fundamental, mundane things to do that make the foundation. And then the key to doing it first, you got to get the correct things that you want to do fundamentally and do them correctly. But the other key is to do them daily because when you accumulate all the days, like, you know, like I wake up every morning. One of the first things I do is I hit my knee and I pray to, to God. And I ask for guidance and direction. I ask uh, God to speak through me today um, and to keep my ego out of it um, and, and just, you know, be there to be of service uh, to God um, and to my fellow man. And uh, so when I, 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 there's nothing like fancy about that. I don't have to, you know, for me, I don't have to, you know, a lot of, I used to think, you know, it's holier if you do it at a church. There's nothing wrong with going to church. There's nothing wrong with doing it at a church. But I just don't go to a church every morning. But I do hit my knees every morning. That's a fundamental thing I've been doing for over 25 years. Um, did I believe in God before that? Absolutely. My whole life I did. Um, you know, I was born and raised um, Catholic. Um, as of the pen, you know, as of the pandemic, so two, two and a half, three years ago now, to me, as much as there was a, you know, disturbance in the the whole system of the world, not just the U.S. Man, I'll tell you, there was, for me personally, there was a lot of great things that came out of it. And none of it was monetary, but there was a lot of great things that came out of what it. What was the number one we, thing that came out of it that you could tell us? <laughs> it drew me closer to the Bible. Uh, it made me study the Bible. Um I, I shouldn't say it made me. It, it there was an inner drive to 
where it's kind of like I talked my head and was looking at things going on in the world and the U.S. and going, what, like, what is going on here? And it was it was much more than just the pandemic part. Um, there were things there were things that just weren't common sense, rational things that were based on moral law you know, from God that were going on and you could, you know, see a color blue and somebody would tell you that that's the color red and they will fight you to the death for it. And you're going, this just doesn't make sense. So that made me start to think, okay, there's more to this than just irrational people. There's more to this than just irrational, say, government or whether it's local, state or federal um, or international as far as organizations. So when you take a step back, or when I took a step back and started looking at a bigger picture, I started to see a lot of dark, motivated things that were evil. And I thought to myself, okay, well, I know where to get the answers to fight this. And so it, it drove me to like not just read the Bible, but study the Bible and try to understand it and really drove me to, you know, learn about things that happened, you know, with the Reformation in the you know, yeah. late 1400s, yeah. 1500s. It just brought a lot of fundamentals back because, you know, I'm embarrassed to say, but the fact is I never read the Bible cover to cover, yet I was a believer the whole time. Yeah. Well, and it's like, go ahead. We have that in common. You know, we, we both grew up yes. in the Roman Catholic Church. And, and again, it's, it's not church hurt, maybe it's church disappointed, which I've harped on co- constantly on this podcast in previous episodes, because um, there was a lot of stories in that Bible that need to be told in a relational way, and I think that's what Jesus intended. You know, when we talk about relating to David or somebody in the Bible, um, there's the stories in there that are relational, and they're they're there so we can learn from them and not repeat those mistakes, and it's not about just showing up and making the sign of the cross and taking uh, the Eucharist mm-hmm. And going to confession. I mean, it, it's a, it is a self-development book at its core, and it's not treated that way. And you and I both went off the rails uh, in our 20s and 30s a little bit um, mm-hmm. because we didn't have those lessons. So if there was a—let um, me ask you this, Tony. We, we often start off this podcast with um, uh, the question of when did the lights turn on for you? But what was the aha moment? When did you have that moment that kind of changed everything where— where we see things in a different light. Can you remember that point in your life where you said, wait a minute, and all of a sudden things changed? As far as um, being a believer? Um, Just in general. In general? You know, I I would say probably the most profound change was, you know, just two and a half years ago for me as far as, because I always believed, even in my darkest days of drinking and, and, and drugs and I mean, I, I was unemployable. I couldn't hold a job at, at 7-Eleven because I wouldn't show up. I wasn't responsible enough to, to, to do any kind of a job at, you know, my la- in the last two years of my drinking and drugging. That's how, you know, incapacitated I was. So even though there was a, like that, that I used to think was the big awakening, even though through those dark days, I still believed in God. I still believed in the Trinity. I still believed in Christ and the Holy Spirit and, and how it all worked, but I did. I believed it, but I didn't have an understanding of it. If that makes any sense, yeah, like oh. far. It was like far away, right? I mean, because yes. I totally identify with you with this because 
you know, I was like that too. But I remember coming home, uh, you know, and, and after a night of partying and saying mm-hmm. my three Hail Marys and three Our Fathers. Right. And, and, I've, and I've told this story before. It was, it was so ritualistic that I would pass out in the middle of it and I would wake up at three, like three o'clock in the morning. I remember exactly how many I had to say. And that was my penance, you know? Right, right. Um, not leading a, not leading that, a Christian life. Yeah, and I wasn't right, leading a Christian right. life. It, I no. always believed. I always went to church. But again, yeah. this is so important for people to get this, male or female, young or old. Gosh, if you have a relationship with that book, um, you know, it's, it's not just a book about what happened. It's a book about what always happens. That's what our pastor yeah. told us. Think about that. Yeah. It's not just an old book, and that's what people are trying to frame it as these days. This new right. education is coming into schools and telling people that 3,000-year-old, 4,000-year-old book with stories about Moses and creation, and it has no relevance in your life today because it was just written by a couple of old guys who, uh, who had biases and stuff. And when you realize, no, right. this, is, this is God's story. That's God's pen, yeah. and he wrote it for you in this day and age, just the way he wrote it in, in thousands of years ago, so we could learn from it and avoid the mistakes. And the characters in the Bible are flawed, Right, Tony? Isn't that isn't that oh, beautiful? You way, know? way more than I ever would have thought. Way more. And so when we when we think about a righteousness that was beat into us, and then we realize, well, wait, they were flawed. It doesn't mean we're supposed to continue that, but it means, hey, you know what? God does forgive, and God's put these lessons here for a reason. And and the thing I love about it, and and I'd like for you to talk about this, is you know, in Hollywood, everything's a perfect ending. Right. Elvis. Our dog's in the studio. Uh, in Hollywood, Tony, everything is a perfect ending. And that's how we like our fairy tales. But what I realized in reading the Bible is there's not perfect endings. You know, I, I look at the story of Jonah, right? And he went and he, right. he resisted God. Uh, God used him, but then he still ended miserably because he never right. got rid of the disdain in his heart. And he never right. fully came around. So God's saying, hey, you know what? You have two choices. And I'm going to give you the choice where there's life, but... Hey, here's some examples of people who didn't choose that and it didn't turn out good. Right. And and I think that's crucial that it's in there because you're like you said, it's not a fairy tale. Just because you do your you know, like hit your knees, say your penance, and if then if you don't live correctly or live by the moral law or do your, you know, best to live by the moral law, I mean what'll really mess up mess it up for you, meaning for people or for myself, is once you know the moral law, it will mess you up because now when you do something wrong, you know you're doing something wrong. You know, before I would call it a gut feeling, before I would call it, yeah, I probably shouldn't be doing that, but, you know, it's not that bad because other people do other. And it's like other people's stuff is not my business. What I do is my business and because I have to answer to God at the end and and and, you know, for me, on, the, on a daily basis, that in the evening, I'll take some time to reflect on my day. Just, you know, some, I used to write about it. Now I just do it in my head. And I just reflect on my day. Um, and I think about, does anything stand out in my day where I possibly, you know, could have done something that is definitely wrong or, you know, and I, I'll ask myself, did I lie today? You know, and why? And if I did, why did I lie about that? And it could be a, it could be a, a lie that doesn't hurt anybody, that doesn't do anything. Say it, it's just a lie to make myself look better yeah. because I wanted to make myself look better. 
it's still a lie. And, and then I try to dig on why did I lie? Like, why did I do that? There was no reason for me to lie about that. Why did I lie about it? Um, and, and as I do that, um, I kind of, you know, peel the onion, if you will, and, you know, try to get to the core of, okay, well, what was, you know, my motivation for that was to make myself look better. Why do I need to make myself, why do I have to be an image of something that I don't think, you know, or something that right. I think I need to be? It's like, just be myself, just be the image of God that God created and tell the truth. Yeah. You know, and I, I want to say, and I want it to sound funny, but tell the truth as much as you can, you know, make, as long as I'm aware of the difference between a truth and a lie, yeah, I'm making progress. It's amazing what our, our paths have taken us because I've kind of made that promise to myself and it seems so simple, but if, if we, ca- if we can't tell a lie, right, not even a white lie, right. what, what that does is it holds you accountable. And if that is so many people say things and it's just a little bit of bending of the truth or even sensationalizing, you know, and I say, you know what, right. if, if we're going to get back to a place in this world, people have to take us for our word. And even if that word's not good, I mean, like even, even if it doesn't reflect well on us, you know, we have to right. be able to apologize, but we have to be able to be true to our word. And so if we go back into uh, the world that we were brought up in, as far as I know, um, from our conversations, you had a, a really good childhood, right? Your mom and dad? Yes. So yeah. and and you yeah. and you had an older brother. Yep. And my um, brother was five years older. Yeah. So I know you were raised in Canada, but then you you went to high school your senior year here in uh, Kent, Ohio. So a, a relatively well, we we wouldn't say a typical American upbringing, but North American. Hey, you know, mom and dad home, uh, brother playing sports. Right. I mean, like kind of yep. like a a, a storybook Church childhood. Every Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was you know Southern Ontario is. Almost, you know, Canada is like America light. We would always joke around about that. Yeah. But although some of the laws are different with sovereignty and stuff like that, we don't have a president. You know, Canada has a prime minister because they're ruled under the monarchy yeah. of England. Well, now they have a, a socialist dictator, so things yes. are still changing. <laughs> and that's an understatement. <laughs> that is an understatement. That's, well, that's let's, an understatement. Let's talk about yeah. this because I love football analogies, but I also I also love to talk about what it means to to um, – beat things and 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 overcome things so i always look at you and i have a a love of classic rock and roll right we yeah. we love bands and stuff and yeah. i it's easy for me to look at some guy and go look at the leader of that band you know how could he how could he be that promiscuous how could he do all that stuff you know and then i think to myself right. but david like like Elvis, I'm a big Elvis fan. This is a totally different thing, right. but the same thing. Elvis had a lot of girlfriends. Um we look mm-hmm. at someone like um uh, Axl Rose, right? Who I know you love. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, yeah. I, I stopped and asked myself, but I've never been put in that situation. Like it's mm-hmm. easy to point fingers and you see someone uh, that either their ego or their appetite for destruction. Right. See like how I right. threw that in there. <laughs> that their appetite for destruction <laughs> has gotten the best of them. And I think um, I'm going to try and ask you this question, but maybe what happens is when you find yourself dominating and when you find yourself, especially, you know, a big man in a big man's game and, and all of a sudden like you can't do any wrong and, and everybody's looking up to you and there's, there's no threat physically because you're the biggest dog in, in the yard. And, and then your ego gets blown up because everybody's telling you how great you are. Um, that's gotta be tough. And I think for us, the, the people who have never experienced that it's easy to point fingers and say, how could you let your ego get out of hand? How could you do all that? But then again, it's almost like, that's what sometimes the enemy uses is look at all this stuff, Tony. 
Look at how great right. you are. So talk about that, how it is to get into that mindset of your youth and then have everybody just kind of just fawn all over you yeah. and then having that um, um, invincible kind of feeling. Right. Yeah. And, and, and it's, uh, you know, everything is easier to get. Everything is, um, the opportunities are greater um, when you become say a celebrity or a, you know a professional athlete or, or you know a public figure um people will cater to you more some of those people are genuine with a with the with a great motive and appreciation most of them are not um and to me now at this point in my life when i look back i used to look back even 10 years ago i would look back at situations like that and there were hundreds of them where i would look back and i'd be like that was just a person that was very bad motivated and they were trying to get something out of me whether it was monetary or time or name dropping or it doesn't matter what it was now at 56 and because of what happened in 2020 and all the stuff like a lot of stuff has been revealed let's just say um i start to see the work of satan or the work of the devil and i if I would have said that, say, four years ago, I probably wouldn't. Actually, I probably wouldn't have said it. I just would have said it's probably just a dark force uh, or something just evil about that person. But it is really a like a plan of Satan um, that wants that puts people in your life to derail you, and it'll and he will try to do it in any fashion possible. Whether your weakness is shopping, money, fame food, women, men, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. He will try to connive his way into your life. And if you don't have a good, you know, I look at myself and say, if my foundation is not solid and constantly reinforced in Christ daily for myself, for my well-being, you know, for my survival. And I don't say that like in an extreme way. It's like literally for my survival. Um, then I'm susceptible to, well, I can do a little bit of this today because it's only a little bit. And before you know it, you'll blink your eyes and four years later, you'll be so far off the path. You'll, you'll ask yourself, how did I get here? And it starts with the subtleness, the subtle stuff that you don't think is that bad. You know, you referred to like a little white lie earlier. So a little white lie. Or if I take a dollar out of the till, nobody's going to know, no harm, no foul. Then two months later, $5 out of the till is no big deal. Before you know it, you're embezzling money from somebody or you're, right. from your employer or, or you're, you know, whatever. I can flirt with a girl and, you know, it's only flirting. It's not like we're doing anything. And then, you know, six months later, you know, there's a hug. Then, six, you know, six months or it could be quicker, it could be longer. You know, all of a sudden there's a kiss involved and it just keeps progressing. So, so that's how coming I see it now as far as on a daily basis. And I have to watch myself because I've been in all those situations that I just described and I've seen where it leads me. So what I do is immediately I just kind of nip it in the butt and I just don't give it any attention. And I also at that moment internally will thank God for letting me see that. And being able to separate it from, say, good versus evil or, you know, the moral law and everything else. 
It is. It is the like C.S. Lewis says, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. It's the one without yes. the signpost. Um, you know, if you've ever. Yes. Uh, there's a, a an instance we've talked about here before. It's in the screw tape letters where there's a guy who's seeking out uh, God in the library, and um, screw tape has been assigned and uh, his assistant to uh, to divert this man away from God. And the assistant's like, "Well, what do we do?" He's like, "It's just subtle." He goes, "Just whisper in his ear, how about lunch?" Right. And and then he's like, "What?" He's like, "Yeah," because this guy's in the library. He's seeking God, and the devil says. It's it's we're not going to get him with something magical. Just whisper in his ear, "How about lunch?" And then that guy starts thinking about lunch, and he goes outside back into the regular world. And all of a sudden, his attention is diverted away from God with a simple suggestion, with something. I mean, it, it's it's a lesson. When I first read that, I'm like, "That's so true." And what you just echoed is it's it's the subtle things that if we're not on guard for, and for the for the person who may be uh, the baby Christian or not aware of that. It, it's kind of daunting because I remember when I first started to think of life that way, I'm like, well, does that mean every single second of my day, I have to be alert for someone who's trying to, you know, uh, lure me or, or something that I'm going to do. That's going to go off in the wrong direction. No, you know, you don't want to be neurotic Christian. You want to be, but you do want to be alert and you want to be aware of those things. Um, and I think that you want to be, you want to be vigilant. Yeah. And you pointed that out perfectly. And when yeah. you have opportunities to, and when you're in the in the, in the limelight, it's it's going to be more. You know, in in the book, my book, The Pursuit, um, when I talked about this particular thing, we talk about how close from an athlete's perspective, and I think sports is such a great metaphor for life. But how mm-hmm. close from an athlete's perspective is um, the difference between success and failure, especially when things are going well? Because again, we remember at the beginning we talked about. How many of us are going through a transition? How many of us are trying to get ahead, whether it's in your careers, whether it's in your, your love life or with your body? And the worst thing is seeing success, knowing it's right there, and then letting your foot off the gas. And I think, Tony, you've been a great example of someone who's been really, um, you know, your whole life. And you, we can use the weight room for a metaphor because I know you still work out mm-hmm. religiously, um, yeah. but very disciplined, and and not to let up. And you were just talking about not letting up even in your spiritual life when the subtleties you think that doesn't matter. So this particular part in my book, and I reminded you of it, when the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were hosting the Indianapolis Colts, um, mm-hmm. this particular game took place um, in 2003. It's one of the NFL's 100 greatest games. And I know, Tony, I remember you, it. You, you played with the Colts for some time, for um, four years, right? And yeah, three years. Yeah. what happened in this particular game is the Colts became the first NFL team to win after trailing by 21 or more points with less than four minutes left to play in regulation. Right. Okay, big deal, Dave. Right? I mean, if you're out there and you're like, right. I'm not a football fan, big deal. The Indianapolis Colts came back trailing by 21 with less than four right. minutes. Well, let's let's think about life, okay? So much of life is you're winning, you're winning, you're winning. And then what happens? You get complacent. And what happens is it's a fight to the end. Like you have to be in the battle. You know, the Apostle Paul says, finish your race. He doesn't say start your race, you know, get halfway there, get three quarters of the way there, and then get lazy. He says, finish right. the race. And I want to use this particular part for a metaphor in sports because I was in that locker room afterward and I've never seen people so angry. And it was a metaphor not only 
for us here. But in that season, the the Buccaneers were coming off a Super Bowl. Um, they had right. a they had a, a a hopes to repeat, and they did terribly after that. They they went on to uh, miss the playoffs. I mean, it, it was just crazy. So what we see is a little bit of adversity goes a long way if we're not protecting ourselves. And if we get lazy and we think, okay, well, I'm doing good enough. I'll let the door open. Now, this is when adversity comes in. And in our life, it's when the enemy comes in. I'll uh, leave that crack open. And that's when opportunity for failure happens. So speak about that, Tony, in terms of being able to constantly keep your eyes on the prize and how that works out, not only with sports, but in life. Well, you become, uh, you become susceptible to more things that are, you know, I'll just use the word slippery or, or cunning, um, subtle and cunning. Uh, if you're, you know, being vigilant is not a shiny object. Being vigilant is mundane. It can be kind of mundane, especially when you do it or try to practice it day in and day out. And so, look, there's nothing, nobody cares as far as when they do interviews, uh, you know, sports related or whatever. Nobody cares that I hit my knees in the morning because it's not fancy. It's not a, it's not something they want to write about, especially in this fallen world that we live in. So it just doesn't sell headlines. Um, although I still talk about it because I still do it, it's not a shiny object. That action is not a shiny thing. That's not something that's like, oh my gosh, this is what he, this is his, you know, practice, what he does every morning. He gets on his knees and I might, might be on my knees only for like 30 seconds to a minute, sometimes longer if, if more, you know, um, if I'm inspired more. Um, but then, you know, just the mundane things of, uh, you know, and I'll go into some mundane things that really have nothing to do with vigilance, but they have to do with discipline. So if I make my coffee, I make my coffee. I refill my dog's water bowl with fresh water, and sometimes I'll put ice in it. Um, I'll refill his food, and if I think his dish is really like dirty because it hasn't been washed in a week, I'll you know wash it, dry it, put food in it. It's like I have a responsibility to that animal because I took on that animal, and I have a responsibility to take care of him. But more importantly, before I can take care of that animal, I have to take care of me because I'm responsible for that animal. So by hitting my knees, I'm being vigilant and I'm already building up, you know, we use the, the phrase, the armor of God. I'm already starting to start my day on the right way. You know, yes, I make my bed. Um, these are all fundamental, simple things that anybody can do. But as if you do them every day, that's how you start to live your life um, in other aspects of your life, other areas of your life, whether it's work, whether it's photography, whether it's editing in Photoshop, whether it's talking to people at the grocery store. You know, the little things you do daily accumulate to the, ma the majority of the things that you do in your life because you do those things every day. Mm hmm. And I myself included am guilty of, hey, look, I want to hit the grand slam. I want to do this. I want to, you know, I want to do something that's like biblical, if you will, right? That's like earth shattering, that's, that's moving, that people go, not, you know, that not just myself, but people go, whoa, like that was like an incredible thing you did or something great that happened, whether it's in business or sport or 
in your life, doesn't matter what the thing is, but very, those things don't happen every day. Um, it's the mundane things that you do every day that give you the opportunity for those things to happen more. And a perfect example is Peyton Manning. Um, watched him firsthand for two full years, practice, how he prepared, how he prepared in the film room, what he did for conditioning, how he prepared before practice, how he practiced, how he spent time on the field after practice. This guy put in so much work. It's like, does it surprise me that they came back from 21 points with four minutes left? I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that is surprising. But you know what? If anybody could have put themselves in that position for that to happen, okay. he had been doing it for eight, seven, eight years already, along with Marvin Harrison, which, you know, I'm sure at some times was kind of like, please, enough with the after practice practice. I know. Um, and, 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 and in relating to sports figures, you know, look, Kobe Bryant's drafted out of high school into the NBA, and that night he goes to the gym and starts and shoots, you know, hoops. Because that's just the way he is, and that's the way he prepares daily. And those mundane things are what let you or give you at least more opportunity to hit the grand slams or to have the great successes. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of, you know, we talked about courage. Um, I also like to, you know, even more so talk about having bravery to do things because you could, you could have, like, I could be scared of doing things, but if I'm brave enough to confront them, my fears, it just means I'm becoming braver and having more courage, but that doesn't mean I'm still not scared of that thing, whatever that thing is, Ooh, whether it's good. getting on an elevator or whether it's being around 80,000 people or whether it's being in the weight room or whether it's being doesn't matter what it is so the more i practice that those things or any of us to practice those things and confront those things um the braver we get and then we start to see in ourselves that you know you know yeah like really just about anything is possible now for me it's definitely you know like, like i knew it was impossible to get sober and then the miracle of God happened and I got sober in 1995, March 23rd, 95. And I knew it was an act of providence and it was an act of God that got me sober because I tried everything and I have the, you know, willpower of a bull like many of us do. And I could be stubborn. I will grind away and figure it out until I get it. And I could not do that. So when it did happen and it happened because I hit my knees and I asked God. Because somebody said to me, have you ever asked God to get you sober? And I said, well, no. But yet I was a believer, right? So I thought to myself, well, maybe I'll try that. I mean, what do I have to lose? And then it happened. And I thought, you mean all these years that I was torturing myself, i that's all I needed to do was be willing, you know, to ask God, you know, please remove this obsession from me and the sin of, you know, drunkenness and constant abuse of external, you know, opiates and things that are ruining my life and mm -hmm. people around me. Um, and it was granted. And that's, you know, that's, to me, that's like personal, like grace from God that I know that 
I couldn't do it as a, as a human by myself. And there were many people that tried to help me. I and imagine. it was just that one, and it was that one simple, unshiny suggestion of, well, have you ever asked God to get you sober? Because that's not a headline, right? In today's world, that's not a headline. No. And that's all I did. And I tried so many different, I tried hundreds of different ways to get sober of my own uh, will and couldn't do it. it. It might last. One time I went two weeks without drinking or drugging on my own and doing it with my pure white knuckling willpower. And then that little voice in my head, which I will call the devil, said, see, it's obvious you don't have a problem with alcohol and drugs. You just went 14 days without using. So you can start chipping again, start taking a little here, a little bit there, just have a beer here or you know drink here. And before I knew it, three months later, I was back worse than I was before I started. That's powerful. It's powerful because I think a lot of people um, listen to that and they're like, especially in, in today's day where there has been so much um, stress and, and the weight of the world. And we see the statistics are, are climbing about substance abuse and how people are coping yeah. with the economy, coping with um, yeah. the pandemic and all those things. And we talk about the courage it takes and the perseverance. So let's, let's take that next step here. So you get yourself sober. Uh, you're out of football. And let's talk about what the courage it takes for Tony Mandich to walk into that training camp in 1996 with the Indianapolis Colts, knowing that there was a lot of eyes on you in the locker room, a lot of reporters waiting to see <laughs> what's going to happen here. I mean, there must have been a, a whole bunch of self-talk then. Who was your support system then? And, and what was that like walking into that locker room that, during that training camp in 1996, knowing that you had to prove something? Well, you know, my, I mean, my support system really came from like my sobriety came from a 12 step program. Although my, you know, my real support system came from Christ and my faith. Um, but it was through the 12 step program, which were the tools that got me through. That just happened to be my path at the time. And, you know, three, three to six months after I got sober, I mean, I was lifting weights after three weeks of, you know, stopping after I'd put myself through 17 days of treatment and understood. And they introduced me to a 12 step program. And so I kind of was like, well, you know, I, I, I will listen to their direction because all of my best plans, you know, had gotten me into a treatment center in the first place. So I started working out again and, was you know changing a lot of things about a lot of a lot of behaviors about my life, changing a lot of things, um, you know, doing simple fundamental things like getting good sleep, um, eating better. Uh, you know, it's amazing how much money you can save when you're not, you know, abusing drugs. And yeah, but were, were you it's confident? Just, were you confident walking into that training camp that you were going to get a roster spot? I mean, how, how, what percentage? Um, Let's say that way. You, you're walking on, you're like, man, I've been out of the game. And usually when people come out of the game, especially at, at your position, they don't just slide right in. It's very competitive. And two years, two yeah. or three years in the NFL will feel like a decade in terms of your body, yeah. in terms of younger guys coming in. So on a scale right. of 1 to 10, how confident were you that you were going to make that team, Not let alone start well, 16 games? I, I will say this. 
when I was six months sober, and I didn't sign with Indianapolis until I was 11 months sober. When I was six months sober, I started watching because football season started, and I was watching it on TV, and I was watching the tackles, the offensive tackles, which is my position. And there were a few of them that were starters on, and I couldn't even tell you what teams I was watching. That I was like, like I'm better than that player, like. I'm I'm just a better player than that player. I know I'm a better player. I might not be better than that guy today, but I can prepare myself because I know what to do the correct way without steroids and just do it clean and sober and do it the correct way. But I know I'm a better player. And then it started to be like there was more than a half dozen I would watch their games and these players, and I'd be like, I'm, if not better, at worst, as good as this player, and he's a starter already in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's, you know, that wasn't a diss on those players. Right. It was just an evaluation with myself. So then I thought, you know, I know I can play. I just need a chance. All I need is a chance. Unfortunately, I burned all my bridges. Somebody did give me a chance. Once they gave me a chance, my confidence of making that team was probably 90%. Um, because internally, I knew that nobody was going to outwork me. Um, nobody was going to like outwork me, whether it was in the weight room or on the track or running in the, you know, on the football field, as far as drills we would do in the off season, I was not going to not make it because of a lack of effort and preparation. And that 10% was of, you know, me thinking, well, okay, I might not make that 53 man roster is look, you, you just may not fit in here because they might have like three really good tackles because yeah. you have one for backup. So the situationally, it may not work. Politically, it may not work because of, you know, somebody making a decision on the yeah. favorites or something. Um, financially, it may not work, although that worked to my advantage because I was being paid minimum wage for the NFL for a four-year player. So you at that time it was like 196,000. So if they have a tackle that's making 196,000 that's as good as another tackle that's making over a million, who do you think they're going to keep? Right. So that worked to my advantage. So there was all those you know and then there's certain variables that I just have no control over. What, but the ones I do have control over, I'm going to make sure, sure that I go, you know, above and beyond. Well what what was that season like that comeback season? In '96, so you you get it was great. You get a spot on the you get a spot on the team, and then what? I get a spot on the team. They you know they they make the final cut, and I'm you know very confident. If if I would have got cut, uh, I was confident another team would have picked me up because now they had preseason game film on me. Um, luckily, I, I you know I don't say luckily, just fortunately, I made the 53 man roster, not as a starter immediately, and you know, opening day, standing on the sidelines with the national anthem playing, it was like, I, it was like the Matrix, like being in the movie Matrix when things go slow-mo. I was like, oh my gosh, only by the grace of God am I standing here, not just alive, but back in the arena of doing what I love to do. And I knew it was a direct result of God. And then it was like, okay, you know, what's my purpose here? Because it isn't just to play football. All of these things and miracles didn't happen just to play football, but it was a crucial part 
to play to prove not just yeah. to myself to play some demons, but to prove to myself you you can be a starter at a high level. When did you halfway start through that season? Probably like the ninth game, eight or ninth game of that season, I became a starter and uh, played out the rest of that year as a starter. And I think we even made the playoffs yeah, well, that year. You know what's funny? Yeah. There's a, a game there, November 10th, 1996. It was the 11th game of the season. And okay. uh, you were at Miami. And I remember being, I was in the stands and I was, you know, I was always been a huge football fan. I'm like, oh yeah, there's that guy Mandrich. He's back. You know, I right. never told you that, but right, I remember right, that right. day. I remember pointing you out. <laughs> and, and I remember right. I, I was, you know, I, I was a football fan. I really didn't have any knowledge of your story really back then. You know, I, I wasn't one of right. those people that was hating on it. I was just kind of glad to see you back. And, uh, and I had a question for you regarding that, you know, did you come back because you had something to prove to yourself or did you come back? Did you have more to prove to the league or the public or the haters? There's, there's a, a lot of dichotomy in there, but who did you have to prove yeah. something to? Well, the two, the two biggest things were to prove to myself I could do it without chemicals. Um, and the other thing was to right as many wrongs as I could by keeping my mouth shut and working hard and giving that organization everything I got as far as effort and, and basically doing the opposite of what I did in Green Bay where I was a train wreck. Um, and, but yeah, so part of it was, yeah, to prove to myself that I can do it without drugs. And then the other 50% was to do it, to, to right some of the wrongs that I had done that you could only do by your actions um, of coming back to play and making yourself vulnerable. And because at the press conference, when I signed, I mean, I was asked by a reporter, why would you put yourself um, at all of this, you know, uh, exposure of, of, you know, this like potential ridicule um, and, and, you know, you know, because of how your career had ended in Green Bay. I remember the one guy, saying the reporter saying you know you, last year that you were in the league was 92 and you were making over seven figures a year now you're making minimum wage and you're just fighting for a roster spot and i thought to myself you know i didn't say this but i thought to myself man if you only knew how lucky i feel just being here i, I don't care if i'm the lowest man on the totem pole i'm just grateful i'm alive and that i'm here with an opportunity to compete um, I, w I didn't care at all about like, you know, the minimum wage and plus, and what I did say verbally to them was I'm a bust. I suck. I, I, I have nowhere to go, but I, you can't get worse than you guys have written already about me. So I really have nothing to lose by coming back and everything to gain. And that's how I approached it. That's how I looked at it. You guys have already written everything bad you can write. And so there should be nothing expected out of me. I love that, so, Tony. I love that because I want to ask you, how do you relate that to people? Um, again, we want to relate to people of all walks of life, but there's so many people that are going through job changes right now, career changes, and especially on social media, everything. I mean, back then you had the media in your face. There was no social media, but right now social right. media is, is a form of media by na by its name. And people are, well, what if they see me and I'm not where I used to be, or I'm, I'm, I'm with a different place and I'm starting over. And what does my ego look like? And you're like, you know what? Uh, sometimes you got to put all that crap aside and just be like, Hey, you know what? Yeah. This is a new start. So what would you say to somebody in a, in a, in a career 
other than professional sports that's going through a similar thing? How can we relate that to them? Uh, I again, I will give you. I will give you the simplest, fundamental, most fundamental, in my opinion, easiest answer and thing to do is first of all, I really don't care about social media and what people think on social media because from from what I've observed of social media and especially in the last five years, it's gotten to be like very fake. And it's gotten to be look at the shiny object and it's gotten to be it's gotten to be a cesspool of you know negativity and comparison and this and that and you know, everybody's showing their highlight reel on social media. Nobody's showing the down parts of their day or the rough times of their day or the person that just lost their job and they have a family to feed. You know, nobody's posting about that. They only want to post about, hey, you know, I'm now an influencer and I'm this and I'm that. And that's great. That's good for you. I found myself removing myself a lot from social media just because of that negativity. And sometimes I'm very compelled to um, express my opinion. My opinion by many people will not be popular on social media, although by many people it will be popular by, on social media. So, you know, if you live in truth, if you know what the truth is, if somebody's writing, say, for example, something about me or making a comment about me, that's not the truth. Uh, I might defend myself in it if it's something very vile. But for the most part, it's like, I really don't care what you think because you don't know my life just as I don't know their life. You know, and it, it, it's, it, you know, nowadays, I when I, when I do use social media, it is more or less to, you know, share or, or something, you know, something like this, a podcast or, um, something that's going on with my photography business. Um, you know, I graduated last year from Michigan State after, oh. you know, I had five classes left. So I did five courses online at Michigan State and over two semesters and completed it. So, so I posted my, my diploma, you know, and I wrote underneath, you know, Hey, look, uh, I always took that attitude of school will always be there when I left Michigan State. Because, you know, I had stars in my eyes. I had dollar signs in my eyes when I left. Sure. I was going to get drafted high. And then here, you know, here I was 30 plus years later thinking to myself, something in my head came, like a little voice in my head said, hey, school is still there. You might want to take it off the list as far as things to do. So I, I did. And, and I took, you know, four courses last summer and then my final course last fall, all online. Um, and then graduated on the 17th of December. And that was like, it was very, um, I was very grateful to complete it and I'm glad I completed it. And I actually met, you know, three of my four professors were absolutely phenomenal. Um, which I, I went into it with a, oh my gosh, this whole culture with college and how bad is it going to be? And even though I was online, so I had a filter, still you have to deal with certain things. I mean, there was certain mandatory classes I had to take that was like a two-hour class just one time because of the way culture is and sensitivity of people are. And if you don't take that class and, and prove that you were there like on like a Zoom call for two hours, 
um, they will not like release your grade. Yeah. And, and I thought to myself, wow, things have changed since I was there, but you know, it's like, okay, I have to do this in order to complete my goal. Is, can I do that? Yes, I can do that. Do I like it? No, but yes, I can do that. Do I agree with what they're doing? No, I don't, but I will do it so I can complete my goal. That's awesome. And Congratulations on that. So, thank you. Thank you know, you. I, I love, I, again, I love it. We started off this podcast with saying how, you know, you got to be able to rewrite your story. I love talking to people who, who have overcome adversity. You know, no one's just coasted through this life. And, and yeah. sometimes we, we hear the beginning or we hear the end, but there's so many parts in the middle. And your story is bigger than I think it, we, you would have thought it was in your 20s. And, and that's continuing. Oh, and I yeah. think you're going to make a, a bigger impact. So um, I wanted to use the last five minutes of, of the podcast by doing like a more fun because I don't think people realize you have a great sense of humor or, or maybe <laughs> those that don't know you like I do. Uh, and then right. an infectious laugh and a great sense of humor. So some of these questions, these are going to be rapid fire, 15 questions All with right. Tony Mandrich. Um, most of them are kind of cute. Some of them are kind of serious. So we can go back and forth between that. Okay. All right. Let's All right, it. here we go. Rapid fire, 15 questions with Tony Mandrich. Okay. So when you and I uh, got together, back in the day out in Phoenix, and I did that story on you. Most people don't know this, but we reacted a scene from Jerry Maguire or the scene from Half-Bake where we're like, all I want to know is who's coming with me. And, and I appreciate that because you didn't really know me at that time. Right. And you right. were, you were right. willing to play along. I'm like, this guy's cool. Um, but right. my first question is, what's the most memorable scene from one of your favorite movies? Oh, man. It's got it. <laughs> Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> and when he is in love with Lauren Hutton, I think it was Lauren Hutton. I think that was her name, the actress. Yep. And he's like, what are the chances of a guy like me, you know, connecting with a girl like you? I'm right <laughs> and there. And she's like, <laughs> like I absolutely that like, love to me, that. <laughs> to me, that's one of the funniest like, things. Cause I think it's cause I can relate. Yeah. He's you like, know, so you're like, saying there's a chance. Yeah, there's a chance. There is a chance. And, that doesn't mean there's no chance. That's Brilliant movie. Brilliant movie. <laughs> and Angelique, Angelique does not get it, but we understand. Okay. <laughs> Love that first question. All right. Um, here's a more serious question. What are kids missing today? Um, uh, oh, well, you know, I wanted to say discipline, but I won't say discipline. Um, I, I would say this, and this is some something that I failed at. Um, I think probably one of the most important things is to have two parents in the household uh, in the upbringing of, of any child or children in a family. Wow. Again, bold answer. I mean, I know you have, uh, I, you've, you've had some struggles in, in that area, but that you, yep you are willing to admit that and, and look what your answer yeah. is when you could have said anything. So yeah, that's yeah. bold. Brave Tony. And, that's and the truth. And, uh, how's your, how is your relationship today with your daughters? With my girls? Yeah. Not good. It's no. not good. It's not good. There is no relationship with them right now since, um, since 2020. Um, there's just been, uh, a lot, a lot of miscommunication. I think, you know, you're only, I'll always preface saying you're only hearing one side of the story, my side right now, but 
I think there's just, there's a lot of miscommunication on both sides. And um, I, I know deep in my heart that, you know, the, they know I love them. They know that I will fight to the death for them. They know I've said to them, if you ever get in trouble with the law and get or in jail or something, I want, I don't want you to be scared to call me. I want you to know, I want you to think the first person I'm calling is dad because he's going to come here to stand by my side and be my support. Mm. So they know, and they know that I love them and they know that because I've literally said this to them, you know, last time I talked to them. Um, and I said, I'll always be your dad and I'll, you know, always love you. And, you know, no matter what you say about me, no matter, you know, how vile or horrendous or whatever you say about me, you can say, I'm still going to love you and I'm still your dad, no matter what. I might disagree with you, but at the end of the day, I'm still your dad and I love you no matter, no matter what. Man, that's profound. And, and you know, what's interesting is that my next question uh, was, what's the best lesson that your dad ever taught you? Speaking of fathers. You know, my dad was awesome. Um, we always obviously didn't see eye to eye. My dad was awesome. I always remember him saying, uh, I always remember him because he would work construction. And I, and I would always, and I would go work with him sometimes on the weekends or during the summer. And, you know, when you're young, it's not a fun thing, right? Working on construction and, he would always say, you have a great experience here of what it's like to work manual labor on construction. He's like, you now are also in school. And he's like, and you can see where an education can get you. Mm. And so really, I feel like I had the best of both worlds there. And obviously, I chose education, but all that physical demand and, um, you know, stuff that was instilled in me with hard work helped me, you know, through football and, you know, all the other physical things in life that you do. Well, maybe that was a a good answer for number one. I mean, for number two as well, sometimes that's what kids are missing today. A little bit of, of hard work and hard labor, you know, like to to know what it's like to put in a day's work, you know, when, when a generation is, you know, kind of had, well, yeah, we've, we're, we're victims of the spoils, right? We've, We've yep. gotten soft. It's right. Um, okay, let's go to something a little bit more fun. Uh, you can switch lives with any one rock star for the day, being a living or dead. Who's that rock star you would switch lives with for one day? You know, initially I would say I wouldn't want to switch my life with anybody because I'm good with my life. Um, it's not perfect by any means, but if, if hypothetically playing make-believe, yeah. hypothetically, oh, man, um, you know, I, I mean, I would have to say, you know, Axl Rose in their prime. Yeah. Yeah. I Remember mean, I showed you that video where he came out, <laughs> he came out uh, singing that Queen song and he came out in his kill with a, and he had that, that signature dance that he did with the microphone yeah. and he was just screaming. Yeah. And when, yeah. he, when his voice was yeah. on, I'm thinking, yeah, that would, that must've been fun. I mean, that was, there yeah. was probably about 80 or 90,000 in that stadium oh screaming for him. So that was, yeah. cool. all right. Uh, what's the best thing to ever come out of Canada? Um, 
I would say probably, although it doesn't qualify for me anymore, but probably beer. <laughs> uh, Canadian beer is like, you know, it's really good. And Bob it, and Doug McKenzie, you know, eh? Bob and Doug McKenzie, eh? Canadian beer and, and yeah, I would say Canadian beer and, and there's, uh, Canada's a very multicultural country. It's a young country, right? So it's got a lot of first generation immigrants. So it's, uh, there's a there's a lot of cool things that come out of Canada, but I would say the beer is probably, and then growing up close to the border of Buffalo and Detroit, um, people were always coming over to buy the Canadian beer. Whenever I was going to Michigan, back to Michigan State after going home to visit, uh, you know, my buddies would be like, "Please bring cases of beer back." So I would. <laughs> do you do you know the funniest story? Because my family's from the Niagara Falls, Buffalo area, and I remember I went there right. and I, I didn't have a a passport, so. And everyone wanted to go on the other side of the fall. So I said, you know, I'll just hang out here on the American side and I'll, I'll have a couple of beers. And so right. um, they called me a couple hours later to pick me up. And I go, oh, where are you? And they go, oh, you can't miss me. There's a big Labatt sign right up, right above this place. <laughs> and they're like, you're not in Miami. Like, there's a Labatt right. sign above every place. That doesn't really help us. Right. Out. So that was right. eye-opening for me. All right, uh, right. What's the best and worst thing about being 6'5"? What's the worst thing about being 6'5", 300, over 300 plus pounds? Being on an airplane, <laughs> I can imagine being on an airplane. Yeah, unless you can afford first class all the time, being on an airplane is the worst. Oh, uh, I, I just, my knees it, hit it, the front, it, and I'm only six foot. Right. I can't imagine another right. five inches. What that's like? <laughs> it's it's just you know it's it's just it's it's like a slow torture is what it is. Um, the best thing is you just you know. You know, physical dominance as far as when when it when it needs to be unleashed. Even um, even in a Bible study, guys, I got to tell you a really quick story because I'll never forget this. Tony and I were going to a Bible study at a coffee shop back in the day on a Saturday morning, and they had this little room that you could reserve. I remember this. And we get there at ten o'clock, and and you know we get there five minutes to ten, and Tony's not there yet. But um, I poke my head in there, and the group before still in there, and I'm like, hey guys, you know we got this room. And they're like, all right. And then ten o'clock comes, poke it in there. And then Tony shows up like five minutes after 10. He's like, why aren't we in the room yet? And I go, well, these people are really late getting out of the room. So he goes in there, he pops in, and he goes, hey, guys, we got the room. I've never seen people move so fast. I mean, that room cleared out in about 15 seconds. They were, they were sprinting for the door, and I'm like, that must be a good thing to be 6'5". And, 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 and I wasn't me. I wasn't no, you were nice. Was you were nice. I was just like, look, this is the deal. We've signed the room out for the oh, next hour. I've told that story many times. It was funny. <laughs> All right, um, the craziest personality you've ever seen in a locker room on the field. Who who is the? I've heard a lot of these stories, and some of them you can't say because some of them are are are, no, are are R-rated. But there's a lot of crazy right. personalities. Uh, you don't want to throw anyone under the table, but who is the no. the craziest or most flamboyant personality that you've ever seen on the field or played with? Oh man, um, you know it, it was believe it or not, it was in school. It was at Michigan State. And um, I won't say his name, but I will say this. This is the kind of guy he was. You know, he, you know how we all have fears? Yeah. And a lot of those fears, like most of our fears are healthy fears, yeah. right? So this guy was fearless and to a point where it was detrimental to him. And it's like I had went out and partied with this guy a few times in college. And I, and I thought to myself, this is not somebody you want to surround yourself with because you are guaranteed you're going to get in trouble. Yeah. Or, or killed. 
Oh yeah. And so as far as like craziest that that would be, it would be the you know a one guy from school, and he, and you know what, he, good guy, he's a good guy. He just, like literally, like the the scarier or the crazier something is, the more he wanted to do it. Yeah, and and I and, and I know there's a lot of those. You kind of have to be. It, it is a warrior's mentality. I I covered the league for such such a long time, and I've been around so many players, and there is a warrior's mentality. And the other part is sometimes it's not necessarily crazy, but the, the, the characters who you least think like, you know, going back in the day, Ty Detmer for BYU, who was a good yeah. guy, but his, his, right. his brother, Coy Detmer, uh, kind of a, kind of a really colorful character. I'll tell you some stories about what I heard about him in the locker room. Really funny, but, um, sometimes it's the quarterbacks and even in major league baseball, it's the pitchers, the quiet pitchers that you don't expect, but oh, yeah. there's, there's a, yeah. there's a common thread. Um, okay. Um, why did you choose photography? Um, you know, I, I really, I, I tell you, it, it's probably not the answer you're going to think. It's, I love hearing people's stories. So even though I do a lot of photography work where you, you know, some of it is commercial. So it's not like you're sitting there getting to know somebody, but a lot of my photography is portrait and, or just, you know, people photography in the studio or uh, location. So you you get to know the person a little bit because you're also um, in contact with them, collaborating, preparing for the shoot. And, you know, I will literally ask the person, like, what, you know, what drives you? Like, what really gets you going? What motivates you um, to get up every day or what, you know, whatever it is. But people, everybody's got a story. And there's a lot of interesting stories out there, uh, great stories tragic stories, but everybody's got a story. And that was something that always interested me because I just felt like I could pull out of them. Like, because I could build that rapport with them and build some trust with them Mm -hmm. that I could then get a better photo or a better capture, if you will, because they, they be- let themselves become more vulnerable. Yeah. They let themselves become, be themselves, which makes for a better image. And, and you're, yeah, you're in the people business. The so whether, whether yeah. you're taking an image or, you know, I, I love to tell people stories. I, I love the human interest stories. You know, there's a game yeah. story, there's X's and O's, but my favorite ones were the human interest stories. And because they're just like, wow, there's so many that we never hear about or so many waiting to be told about everyday people yeah. who have overcome stuff. It's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Um, and everybody's got one. That's true. What's your favorite body part to train at the gym? What do you get geeked up for? Uh, sh- I would say shoulders. Yeah, I like shoulders. I a, I've, I've always been me too. I've always been strong with shoulders. I, I had a really so. skinny neck as a kid. I was I was called ET because I, I have a seven and a half size head. No, no one size fits all ever fit me. So I've had this big head my whole life, but I had a really skinny neck. So when I started lifting in my late teens, early twenties, I went all out on shrugs. And I, at one point, I right. had. I had an 18 and a half inch neck and I couldn't, I couldn't, Whoa. yeah, I couldn't fit anything. I had to get extenders for suits and stuff because I overdid right, right. it. I overcompensated for getting picked on, but, um, yeah, right. shoulder day and I'm paying for it now because I have tons of arthritis. <laughs> right. Um, okay. Uh, other than Michigan state. Okay. Other than the green and white, yeah. what, yeah. what would be the next coolest uniform to wear in collegiate sports football? Oh man. Um, you know what? I mean, there are, there are some pretty cool ones. I mean, 
you know, Oregon comes to mind immediately because they have so many, they have like 12 uniforms a year. Yeah. Uniforms a year. So, you know, my, my head goes to Oregon almost immediately, but because of that advantage that they have with Nike being there and sponsoring them, you know, I, I always love, um, Florida state, the Seminoles. Oh. And I, I, right. I mean, I, you know, but there's also things, I think there's an influence about that too. And that is when their pregame ritual, when they slam that spear in the, oh, yeah. of the field. Like, oh. I love that, you know? And and then some of my favorite athletes played at Florida State, uh, Deion Sanders. Yeah. You know, I played against him, and then, he, you know, he went to Florida State. And so, you know, I like Bobby Bowden, you know, as far yeah. as how he was as a coach. Let me ask you this. I heard, I heard this from someone on the inside of football. I heard that in meetings, with offensive meetings, when Dion was in the league, that there would be offensive coordinators that would just make a big circle on that side of the field, and they go, "We're not throwing here today. Like this is oh, where yeah. this is where Dion is. Like we're not even throwing there." That's a hundred percent true. Wow, hundred percent true. Yeah, and and we did it at Michigan State. Like we did throw his way. I would say only because of somebody named Andre Ryzen. Oh, yeah. Um, who was pretty darn good. Bad Moon Ryzen. Yeah, but Dion could, he would make you think that he's beat, and he would close that gap so quick once you committed to the throw. Um, he made plays that yeah. I, I still am like, I just can't believe this guy did this. And, 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 you know, going back to the uniform, it's, it's hard to, you, you can't say, I mean, you just can't on a private, on a private note, you, you might say, well, that maize and blue has got a cool helmet or, or geez, that, that just white and blue of Penn State. Are we, is, oh, we talking about the worst uniform? <laughs> you just can't get away from that. You can't. I mean, let's put it this way. There's a lot of tradition in the big 10. I, I do like the yes. Spartan, you know, I like, I like the Spartan Yeah. and the green yeah. is a great color. Okay. Um, yeah. all right. This is multiple choice. I got two multiple choices for you. John right. Candy or Mike Myers? Oh, man. They're both so good. And I say um, that because they're both Canadians, right? I'm, Canadian, I'm, I'm, too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to say John Candy. Okay. I, w- I would agree. Because the planes, trains, and automobiles, I mean, just killed me. Just, I, I mean, not, not, and not just that, but just so I mean, much. The old, the old 96er and the great outdoors. Yeah. I mean, there's so many yeah. John Candy yeah. moments that were awesome. All right, here's yeah. another one. Another Canadian uh, d- multiple choice. Rush or BTO? Oh, definitely Rush. Yeah. Yeah, definitely Rush. Um, A staple of Canadian rock I mean, and roll. It just, I mean, iconic. I mean, to think there was just three members in that band. Yeah, to to put out the sound that they put out was just incredible. You know, fantastic. Neil Peart's drum set was incredible. I love Rush. All right, yeah. favorite Bible story. You know, I think the the tugging back and forth of Job with the Book of Job with Satan and God. I mean, like I love that whole book. You know, and and how you know God's very confident with Job in in, but the devil's going to test them. Yeah, I love it too. And I just love that whole, you know, the whole book of Job, I think. Is, I, I'm is, often reminded of Job. I probably, because I was going to say, tested. I probably like it because I can Right, yeah. right. I mean, right. whenever you get down on yourself and think, man, life's tough, you think, well, Job had it a lot harder than me. You know, it could get, yes. it could get worse, right. but let's pray. It and, could and, get worse, yeah. And, yep. and he was rewarded. Um, okay, here's a funny one. Food Americans don't eat, but Canadians do. Is there a food that you think you can think of that Americans would be like, what's that? 
Yeah, probably something called a poutine. Yeah. And what, which I have to be careful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, what your somebody's mind will go somewhere you else. You mispronounce that. A, right. It's a P-O-U-T-I-N-E. And what it is, it's French, it's French fries um, covered with a scoop of, like, blistering, like, French fries. And it's got, like, then it's got, like, curds of, say, provolone or mozzarella cheese on top of it. Then there's a scoop of, like, blistering hot brown gravy on top of that. So then the cheese melts. <laughs> On the French fries, and then and then since I left Canada, they started adding bacon to it. Oh yeah! So it wasn't healthy enough is, before. They had to put some bacon. Right. On it. <laughs> Guarantee you that you'll be part of the health system. Ugh. You know, <laughs> I've had it before. You know, I've like I said, I grew up close to the border, and I've been there several times. It, I, I had a feeling that the poutine was going to be yeah. there. It's it's definitely a dish. All right, the last question. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to football. Who's the best edge rusher in the history of the game? I mean, I'm going to say Reggie White. Um, he's the best I played against. And it's, I say, now, are you specific to edge rusher or defensive end? Well, I guess defensive end. And, and I kind of thought you would say Reggie. I've talked to a lot of tackles, uh, and I've talked to those guys because that's the era that I, I covered the league right. in. And, and they said right. that like Reggie could pick a guy up with one hand and move him around. Oh, like, like no problem. Crazy yeah. amounts of strength. Yeah, yeah. Crazy strength and... Uh, um, like, you know, grounded as a person. I mean, he was a minister, but just grounded right. and had great game awareness, had great awareness of your vulnerability. I talked to a guy who, you up. I talked to a guy who was a guard and, uh, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And this is when Eric Rett was there and Eric Rett was a big smack talker. And he said, Eric Rett was, you know, on the way back to the huddle, smack talking to Reggie White, and and this guy's like, "Hey, man, you know, like I'm having a hard enough time. The last right. thing you want to do, please let, let's not get him mad, you know, like as if he needs Don't more incentive." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he no, was Reggie one of the good was, uh, ones. Yeah, and and you know, it's funny because you go the opposite as far as say lifestyle, but one of the budget, best edge rushers was also Lawrence Taylor, oh, yeah. stand up linebacker. I mean. What he, the stuff he did was, you know, he, I mean, he kind of invented a whole new way to play linebacker. Yeah, you know, I remember being in my, my parents were watching TV uh, in the living room. And I was, you know, at that age, I was like, hey, can I just stay up and watch a little bit more of this Monday night game? And I remember being in the other room watching it. And I remember running out telling my dad, dad, this guy's leg just totally broke in half. I've never right. seen anything like it. It's crazy. Right. It's funny how those it's memories crazy. are seared into yeah. our childhood. But, yeah, the NFL, yep. back in those days, yep. the great days of the NFL, Reggie White, LT. Yep. Well, Tony, I tell you what, I can talk to you for hours. Uh, it's always a pleasure. And uh, thank you for being so uh, forthcoming and, and honest about your journey. Thank you for you know giving us uh, hope because I think the world needs hope right now. They need People need hope on a daily yeah. basis with, with their careers and reinventing themselves. And then we need hope for the bigger things like addiction and, and where the world is going. And, you know, your, yeah. your love for Jesus and your willingness to proclaim the gospel is one of the things I admire about you most. And I just want to say thank you for your friendship over the years and thank you for being a guest here on the Turned On Podcast. May God continue to bless you and use you as a vehicle to spread his word. Amen. Thank, amen. Thank you, my friend.